Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of the Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall, and with me as always is my co-host, Lena Saleh. And we are... Hello, and we are so excited for this episode because we have with us uh, educational consultant and author, Komal Shah, and we are going to dive into her new book, Raise Your Hand. Komal, how are you doing today? I am so excited. I think I was just telling you both that I've been gone, so it's nice to be back home and be in San Diego, but yeah, I'm so excited to be here, and I feel like you and I knew each other through LinkedIn, so it's nice to meet you in person or virtually in person. <laughs> I know it's so crazy in this digital world that we follow each other, we comment on each other's um, you know, posts and um, shared ideas on things. And it really does feel like we know each other. So it is so wonderful to uh, be seeing you visually and uh, <laughs> putting a face with the name. And to those of you listening to the audio podcast, we do record these as videos. So go check out the video as well. And you can see all of our smiling faces. But yeah, we're so excited to dive into this uh, conversation. I know the book came out last year, but it is still more relevant today than even last year. And I think will be for years to come. So before we dive into the book, give our audience a little background. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Ooh, uh, that's a juicy question. You know, the who are you? I'm always, I've, I've been on enough podcasts you think I would have mastered it by now, but uh, here we go. So um, I did my undergrad as a bio major um, at UC Irvine. And the reason why I mentioned that is I never used my major for the rest of my life. Um, so I find that really interesting. Um, kind of went through an existential crisis senior year of, of undergrad, kind of like, what am I doing with my life? Um ended up going to India for a trip with family and came back and just felt inspired to go into something of service. So I applied to Teach for America, didn't know much about the program, fast forward two months and I somehow got in and the rest is kind of history. I ended up teaching middle school math for five years. I taught sixth and seventh grade up in Richmond, California. Um, I taught in a traditional public as well as a charter school and also led a team of teachers during that time as well. And then I would say by my fifth year, you know, I kind of had gone through my stages of teaching, which is usually survival mode to growth to should I still be here? And kind of had this moment of feeling like I wanted to do more, but it wasn't going to happen in the classroom. So I ended up applying to business school and got my MBA at USC, which is where I was, um, graduated virtually because of the pandemic and was just figuring out what to do next. So I started my own business as an educational consultant back in 2020 and decided the marvelous idea of also writing a book at the same time, because why not? Um, And fell upon Creator Institute, which is actually a book program for a year, and had that whole process of writing a book, interviewing people all over the world. And I published last fall. And so it's kind of been definitely a journey, but a lot of reflection, growth, and a very humbling experience. And you mentioned what do you love about what you do? 
I mean, one, I would say, I just feel like this is what I'm meant to do. So I think in some ways it's kind of self-explanatory, but I would say the best part actually has been just connecting with people all over the world. That's been my favorite part. And, you know, I just talked to someone this week from Germany and him and I've kept a friendship over months now and he lives halfway across the world. And so there's just something so beautiful about that to be able to connect. Um, And speaking of technology, that makes it possible. So here we are. I love it. And so this was started after the pandemic, uh, or is this something you were thinking about doing beforehand? In terms of writing a book or starting yeah. my own business? Yeah. I, it's funny how life works, right? You know, you put something out there like, I want to do this, but I guess you never really realize that it may happen earlier or later than you thought. <laughs> um, so I never thought I would be doing something like that during the pandemic. I mean, I always felt that at one point I would write a book, yes. But I think because the program I was in, one thing that the professor had mentioned to all of us is a book can actually be a catalyst for your life. And I think a lot of times people see a book as something you do after you have accomplished or done something, or you write that memoir about your life. But for him, it's a book is an access point that can actually support you and your endeavors. And so that really changed my mindset. And I would definitely say the whole process really proved that point for me because it did catalyst a lot of what I'm doing now. All right. And last question, then I'm turning it over to Lena. Now is the perfect time to talk about reinventing our education system, what it means to be a student, to be a lifelong learner. Talk to us about the why of this topic specifically um, that you want to dive in. And I love that setup that this is obviously not something you've been doing for decades and decades, but it is uh, a passion so far in your life and something you want to continue. Just give us the background on why this book um, and, and where do you hope to go from here? I think it's a great question. You know, I will say one thing. I think people have been feeling and thinking about this for a very long time. I think we're finally putting a voice to it. And we're finally saying the things that people have been feeling. And, you know, it's been really beautiful as people read my book, and this has happened more than once, and they will reach out to me and they'll go, oh my gosh, you finally put words to everything I've been thinking for so many years as an educator. And I think that's so powerful that you can write something down or create something and it can resonate with someone in a way that they didn't even know was possible. And so I will say that one, that's always been existing. And then of course, we're at the, we're at the turn of a space where there has been a lot of push for invention and itself because of the pandemic, right? I think people were at their lows. I think the education system really had to confront a lot of issues that they foundationally had, um, and they had to be reactionary. And I think the next question is, how do we be preventative? Because this is not the last time this is going to happen. And so I think it's a great time that we're having these conversations. Now, I think there's a lot of doubt of is change actually going to happen? But, you know, one thing I always say for a system to change, people have to change first because systems are made up of people. So I think for the first time, the fact that we're even having a voice to it, we're having conversations about it, people are trying to reinvent even their roles, whatever it may be within school spaces or outside of school spaces, I think that's a start. Now to sit here and say, is the whole system going to just reinvent itself within the next few years? I mean, I think that's a bold ask, but I think we're finally planning this seats to make that possible. I completely agree with what you're saying, because I think for so long, exactly what you're saying, like all these things that we have seen surfaced in the pandemic um, were not things that were 
just new, like they didn't just appear because of the pandemic. These were all things that were just exasperated by the pandemic. And so I think that it, for the first time, allowed people, what you're saying, to discuss the issues that we're actually facing every single day. So I think that that's, um, it's just nice to see that people are really putting, you know, pen to paper and, and sharing their ideas out because for so long it was just like, in the lunchrooms or whispering, you know, like there wasn't really these like real high level conversations that we've seen. So um, when we talk about consciousness and education, um, how do we build children to become conscious adults? Yeah. So I want to start by just defining consciousness because I think there can be a lot of interpretations of what that means. And actually, it was funny because when I wrote the book, I too had to discover it, right? It was through interviews and having conversations because I had this idea, but I didn't really know how to articulate it in a way that would be understandable. So the way that I think about it is, you know, for everyone who drives to the same job, I know now we're remote work, but going back to the times when we used to drive to work, if you did, and, you know, there's a moment that you have one day when you're at a signal light and you have to break and you go, oh my gosh, where am I? Like, how did I get to this place? And I think that's what consciousness is, is that a lot of times we're doing things day to day in our lives on autopilot, like driving to work, but we're not fully conscious that we're doing it. And it's not until something gets disrupted or interrupted, we take a moment, put on those new pair of glasses and go, oh my gosh, I do this every day but I never saw the signal light or this tree that's on the left-hand side. And I drive by it every day, but I'm finally seeing it, but it's always been there. And so that's the way I like to describe it is a sense of awareness of something that's already being done. And so when we think about the system itself, exactly. I mean, a lot of this has been done. You know, if you think of generations in the past, going into a classroom, listening to a teacher at the front, writing down notes, going home, doing your homework, doing that test, it's always been done, but in my opinion, it's been done unconsciously because we've been doing it, but we haven't been questioning it. We haven't been asking, is this what it means to be a learner? So finally, we're becoming conscious of all these things that were already there. And I think there's such beauty to that. Now, in terms of the question that you asked of how do we cultivate conscious children, you know, something I say a lot of is, we actually are quite conscious human beings. And, and unfortunately, it gets tapped out of us pretty early on. And it happens because we have rules and regulations and we have adults telling us what we need to do, when we need to do it, and how we need to do it. And so the conscious parts of ourselves, the intuition, the, the parts we're going, wait, that's not right. I don't want to do that. I don't want to learn that, becomes tapped out of us because we then get presented this idea of success. And we are told this beautiful illusion that if you do all the things we're saying, you will lead to that one point and you will be happy and fulfilled. And so we forget to ask ourselves, what do I want? What do we want? And, and then the sad truth is it gets tapped out of us so early. And then those same adult, you know, children become adults and do the same thing over and over again, because we're not actually questioning how we were brought up or what that means. So I always say the first step as someone who was a per teacher in the classroom and had to ask these questions is we have to start with ourselves. We're not going to cultivate that within our educational spaces if we're not questioning our own educational experiences and asking ourselves, did this actually serve me? And what did it actually lead to? And if it didn't, how do I shift that in the spaces that I'm in with children and young people? And so I think the work does start with us. Now we can obviously go into the tactical other ways that we can cultivate conscious children, you know, through technology and through intentional ways of mindfulness and other things. But I do think the first 
step is us. <laughs> and it's so true because so much of the learning happens by modeling, right? The, 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 the students are going to watch what the teacher does more than what they say. And so I love that kind of bringing it back to the educator, back to each of us um, to model that consciousness um, as a way to connect with students, even more so than telling students you need to be conscious, right? That's you know not necessarily the best approach. Um, and it kind of reminds me of this shift in we've told students to be continuous learners and you're going to need to be a continuous learner and a lifelong learner. But many educators weren't necessarily practicing what they preached because they were doing things the same way they've done them for 5, 10, 20 plus years. And through this pandemic, they've kind of had to you know, wake up and be more conscious about, okay, I do need to evolve with, um, you know, with uh, being a continuous learner myself. What advice would you have for those administrators that are trying to maybe at a higher level model themselves, but also help inspire their staff, inspire their students, um, and create more of a campus culture of consciousness? Yeah. um, I'll, you know, it is, I think it's important to say that the way that our system is built makes it difficult, right? Because the the, the way that schools are funded and the emphasis on test scores as a way to represent success of the school itself, you know, there's a lot of things that happen, unfortunately, at the top that trickles down into what we see in their classroom spaces to begin with and what educators are actually doing in their classroom spaces. And so I I feel like that's an important thing to say because I think there can be frustration of like, I want to do all these things, I just can't do it, you know. In terms of what can be controlled within these school spaces, I think it really does come down to language and messaging and how as an administrator, what you're emphasizing with your staff. I mean, of course, the first is relationships, but then there is something to talk about, you know, student well-being and mental health. And it's not it's not just a supplemental thing that's talked about on a Friday PD, you know, for like five minutes, right? Like the minute that you do that, you're already showing your your staff what you care about. I mean, that's it, right? You just spent five minutes. I think we know what you care about. So I think like it really starts with an administration who's really saying like, I truly believe in our kids and I want them to be successful. And so I am going to ask them how they're doing or checking up on them when they had something happen at their house, you know, the, the week before and like checking in on them and asking the teacher, how are they doing now? I know they're struggling, you know, and have been struggling. I've had conversations with them. How is it going right now? And I've seen administrators who actually are able to build the culture within the, the confines that they're in. And the question is, can you take the pressure of the test scores and all of that and understand that if we focus on the well-being of children and become conscious of who they are as human beings, the test scores will take care of themselves. I think mm-hmm. we forget that. You know, it's yeah. the same thing of asking, why is the performance of this employee not optimum? And then you realize what's going on at home. Well, of course it's not optimum right? Because there's something going on that we don't know about. So if we know that in adulthood, why are we having, struggling to see that in our kids, right? And so I find that really interesting, but I know it, it is possible. It's just administrators themselves, of course, have to become conscious themselves to understand that that's something that's important in their school spaces. Yeah, I, I want to touch on a couple of things. So JW said, teachers are being continuous learners, um, not maybe, I think it's really being about continuously adapting. I think it's about continuous adaptability because as teachers, you do have to continuously learn because you'll never, 
you have to continue to renew your license and all of those things. So it's really about like continuous adaptability and continuous practice. I think those are actually better terms than like continuously learning. Cause I think we are learning, but exactly as you stated in a staff meeting, something comes up and you have five minutes to learn about it. So there is no way to continuously practice, continuously adapt to what it is that they're, you know, what the students need. And I think you also touched on one other thing that was really important and that's, asking how the students are. Because when you start to see that, we just had um, Kelly Loth from MindSpark and she was my administrator when I was in the classroom. Um, and what she started doing was when, when students were having trouble, instead of disciplining them and suspending them, they would come into the office and they would have like mental health sessions, you know, like about mindfulness and things. And what we started to see was a major shift in the behavior of students. And what you said, then they started having higher test scores, better performance, um, just because they were happy and they were feeling understood. And that's an important part because we have coworkers that are struggling every single day. All of a sudden, they, their work just, their output is not good, right? Like the work that they used to do is very high quality. And all of a sudden, something has shifted. And usually it's something to do with our mental health and being conscious about what we're feeling. So I think those are all really important points that we should, you know, also include in the conversation. Yeah, I was going to, I'm following up on that. You know, it's interesting because I always tell people like, I was kind of that unconventional teacher, like in the classroom space at least. And so like, it's kind of where I started to experiment myself because I would say, you know, your first two years, at least for me, I mean, I was just, I was trying to just breathe above water, you know, try to swim. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think I was in a community that was just ridden with a lot, you know, you know, kids were going home to, there was just a lot of poverty and there was gang violence and there was just a lot of things that were happening. And so it was an added layer as to how I was going to support these students in school spaces. And so, you know, by my fifth year, it was interesting because my kids ran the the classroom. You know, I sat in the back most of the time and that was not normal at my school at all, you know, but, you know, my parents, one time, my parents would come every year to talk to my kids and they would, they're like, do you do anything? And I'm like, yes, I absolutely do. But I've trained them to know that they're empowered in their own learning. And I don't have to be the person that leads that for them. I'm just Mm -hmm. a guide. And so that itself was messaging. And I was a math teacher, which as we know, is a subject that more often than not is emphasized as very, very important. And, you know, my kids would walk into the classroom and the first thing they would see across from them was this huge bulletin board that said, how are you feeling? And so that's how I did it, right? Was like, yeah, we're learning math in here, but it's so much more than that. Like, it's just so much more than that. And the back of my classroom had all of their vision boards. They spent like two weeks in the beginning of the school year writing everything they wanted to aspire to in their lives. And all of their names were on it. And they were all on the back, you know? It was like, this is not about me, you know? And so those, it's so interesting how even those little things make a difference because they knew that when they were coming into my classroom, they weren't coming into a math classroom, right? Mm -hmm. They were just going into a learning space that made them feel safe and heard. And so it was consistency. Of course, I asked them how they felt every day. And of course, at some point, they're like, oh my God, Miss Shaw, seriously, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) well, you know, I I used to visit my kids like every year after them, they'd be like, Miss Shaw, like breathe, you know, like you got to take a moment. And I'm like, okay, like you learned something from my classroom space because now you're integrating it into other aspects of your life. And so 
It's possible. I think that's the thing I'm like, you know, it was maybe small at the time, but I just feel that there's so many beautiful ways. And I want to also emphasize that a lot of people are doing this. I'm not the only one who was able to do that in my classroom. Um, But it is possible is all all Mm -hmm. I would say. No, I agree. We, you know, I also taught in very, you know, poverty stricken areas too. and, And that was my, those were my favorite places to teach, honestly. But we, I started having like a lot of behavior issues and it was having to do a little bit of the structure of the school and different things. You know, I was like you, where I was innovating and trying to like do different things in the space, but we, I would force a meeting every Friday where it was like a morning meeting, but really it was a, let's talk about how we're feeling type of a thing. And at first, you know, they were upset. They're like, oh, this is so dumb. I can't believe making me do this. You know, like those types yeah. of things. But <laughs> By the end, there was a couple of days that I didn't do it, you know, maybe like a couple of Fridays because we had something like, oh, I thought we, I really look forward to these meetings, you know? So they really do look for these spaces where they can feel safe with their emotions because I feel like the safer you feel and the more comfortable you can feel in your environment, just the more well-rounded you become. And I think, especially for you, teaching math is very intimidating. A lot of students either think they are good at it or they're not. And they make this decision very, very early about it. So being able to see that they're thriving and shining in your classroom, that's a really important thing that we don't have to just only drill and kill math, right? Like we don't have to do it like this all the time. Like we need to celebrate the whole person. And I think that that's inspiring too. And and you're right, other people are doing this, but I guess we're just shining the light on them. Too. Yeah, yeah. And my, my test score is, happened to be good. And I used to laugh because I was like, I don't think I'm like the best instructional teacher, but it wasn't about that. My kids love to learn. It was exciting. And I had a, I had uh, the CEO and the board members because I was at a charter school and he would always come into my classroom. And, you know, at some point you just get used to it. And the one time he put me aside and he was like, do you know why I always come in here? And I was like, no, not really. And he's like, you know, your classroom is one of the loudest classrooms that I pass by, but he's like, your kids are always talking about the subject. They're always talking about the learning, but they're excited. And he's like, and I can never find you. And I'm like, great, <laughs> mission accomplished. You know, that's how it's supposed to be, you know, uh-huh. so exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and it just feels like social emotional learning 101, like we have to set that environment before any real true learning can, can take place. Um, I like uh, the, the phrase, you have to Maslow before you can blooms, right? You have to make mm-hmm. sure those needs are met and, and students feel seen and heard and connected um, because I believe that that is the, the number one goal of the teacher is to build that relationship, have that connection and inspire learning um, as well as teach, you know, the students. So um, that's exciting. And we've talked about a couple of practical things uh, like asking the students how they're doing con- consistently. Um, you mentioned breathing earlier. What are a couple of other uh, kind of tactical things for consciousness that teachers could start using um, in, on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing I would say is outside the classroom, I think professional development is also really key. You know, I think in a lot of service spaces and as someone who was an educator herself, a lot of PD is about the student. It's about the child. But, you know, if you think about servant leadership, if you really support the employees, then the people they're serving is automatically going to be served well. And so if we use that same model, then in this case, you know, why are we not having professional development where it's just about the teacher? It's about their development. 
It's about their goals. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, that's, it shouldn't just be like the thing you talk about in the beginning of the year with your principal. And then they talk about it at the end with your portfolio. I mean, there has to be more. And I just led a workshop with a bunch of school leaders and teachers at the deeper learning conference here in San Diego. And the workshop was literally them looking back on the times and when they were in as a student were in the classroom and when they felt shame and when they felt proud and you know they were going through all of these emotions of when they were a student and then there were teachers going oh my gosh that's why I never shamed the students in my classroom because of this one incident I had it with the teacher when I was 10. Like, I didn't know this was why I was doing what I was doing now, you know? And then we talked about, you know, what they wanted success to look like for future for their kids um, and their students. But then they would say, but I'm not messaging it, even though I know that. And that's what we were talking about is like, how do we become conscious that sometimes our practices don't even align with what we're trying to actually do for it? We have the right intention, but it's not coming across from that. So I just want to say that because I don't know how many times people like teachers have spaces to even reflect and like really analyze what they're doing day to day, because of course it's a frenzy and it's hard and it's a lot. And there's a lot of expectations in terms of the classroom itself. Obviously I can only speak for myself because I was the one who was doing the experimenting. Um, I think one self-care is really important. And oh my gosh, I know like seriously, Como, you're from Southern California. Of course you said self-care, but I will say from personal experience, it completely changed how I showed up in my space, like night and day. Um, my kids by my fifth year would tell me, Michelle, you know, you're really calm. Like, you're just calm. You don't get like mad at us or angry. And it was never like I was an angry teacher, but of course there were moments of frustration and stress and just like, get it together, you know? But it was just, I was able to respond instead of react because I was taking care of myself first. So that was a part of it. And then I would ask teachers, what are the things you want to your kids to feel in your space? What do you want them to see in your space and to actually implement those things? So the first thing is what you see. Okay, what are you going to have in your classroom that actually supports the message that you're trying to give? If it's growth mindset, what are they looking around to see that? What are they going to see when they walk in with the bulletin boards, what's on their desks? All of that is going to be really important for C. The next is your routine. So if you're someone who really emphasizes socio-emotional learning, okay, great. You can't just talk about that the first two weeks of school and then never talk about it again. Consistency is so important. And so if I'm asking, how are you feeling? That was in my slides every single day. And they were ready and they were expected and they knew we were going to talk about it. And so it was always emphasized in those conversations. And actually in the feelings, I used to share a lot about mine. Um, something I really push teachers to do is talk about your life with, with your students because this is a human connection at the end of the day. You know, age aside, I used to tell my kids when I was visiting family, I had a lot of people who would also visit my classroom. So they knew a lot about my life. I celebrated the Bali with them and they didn't really know Indian culture, but I was really sharing a lot of who I am with them. And in some ways it made them a lot closer to me because they felt they knew me beyond that. And sometimes I would tell them, you know, I'm really struggling today. You know, I've had a hard week. There's stuff going on at home and I'm just having a hard, so I'm going to show up the best way that I can for you. But also I want you to know that I'm going through this, but I'm going to try my best. And it was giving them permission that they could feel that way too. And it was okay. And just because I'm a teacher, doesn't mean I'm always okay. Um, and then I would always tell teachers too, okay, 
taking moments every two months to reflect on that thing that you were doing. You know, I was, I've been working with a teacher in an, who's a first grade teacher and him and I have a lot of these conversations and he had these big things of what he wanted to see and feel. But what was happening is he wanted to implement like five things at once. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so it's like implement one thing and implement it well. So say that, let me give an example because I know I'm kind of going work around. So let me be specific here. Say that you're like, I really want my kids to feel really empowered when they walk into my door and the classroom space they're in. Great. What's a way you can do that? Well, I can be conscious of that one of teacher talk versus student talk, but honestly, that's a little hard for me to track because I'm really busy during the classroom period. Okay. Well, easy way to do that is do leadership roles. Okay. If I implement leadership roles and the kids are going to feel empowered because they're going to actually have a responsibility when they walk into the space. That's great. Now there's something that goes wrong. Instead of them going to the leader in the classroom that handles that, they come to you. Do you direct them to the leader or do you answer the question for them because you just took away their power? So it's so little. It's this conscious things of, I want them to be empowered but am I doing that every day and making sure that I'm empowering them or am I taking away the power without even realizing I'm doing it? Um, so that's just like a small thing. And I think the reason why I'm not being more specific than that, because I think it's really dependent on what each individual educator wants to see in their classroom and how they're going to be conscious about that with whatever they bring into the space and being consistent with it. Yeah, and I think you make a good point oftentimes when the new school year rolls around, right, we're nearing the end of the school year, um, you know, as you start making your goals and things for next year, you're like, I want to do five things this year. I think it's tricky if you want to do one thing to support your classroom, you know, the, the feel, the vibe of your classroom, and then maybe one instructional thing or implement one technology tool, but you don't want to implement so many because it's kind of like, if you all of a sudden were to try to go tomorrow and run a full marathon, you've done nothing to get there. Like, you know, you could, I don't know if my body would be able to handle it, but you could figure it out in some way or another, but that doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. So you have to make sure that you're being really, you know, you have small intentional goals. People run full marathons after training for months and months and months to be able to get there. Um, so you have to think about it like that too. So I think that's important. Um, that you touched on that as well. Yeah, and I want to dive one more direction because we've kind of gone back and forth between the book and the consulting. Yeah. But tell us a little bit more about the consulting. What are the key areas that you uh, focus on? And, uh, and then how can people get more information about uh, getting in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of do it two ways. I think the first way is doing professional development and workshops for educators. And so similar to what I mentioned, it's kind of going deeper into the teacher and their learning. And so I always say that if we are to become conscious of what we're doing in the current space, we kind of have to go back in time and understand why we are doing what we're doing. I think a lot of times we feel it's disconnected. And what I have found as an educator is it's more often than not, it's not. <laughs> um, and so really, I try to kind of take them through a journey of looking back on when they were a student, 
what that felt like. And then I have them reflect a lot on what success meant to them when they were growing up, what they were messaged as an adult, what is actually success for them. And then are they using the new idea of success in their classrooms or are they still holding on to what they were messaged as children, even though they've now realized it was false? So um, those were kind of the journeys that we take them on. I mean, I also support with implementation. So taking the reflection part and actually taking action and doing that work in the classroom spaces. And then also supporting administration with culture and actually cultivating some of that conscious culture in the space about student fulfillment and happiness and autonomy and choice, even within the confines of the system. And how do you do that over a span of a year? And what does that look like? Because to sit here and say it's going to happen in a few months, that's just being naive, but it's obviously a journey that you're taking the school through. So that's kind of the work that I'm doing right now um, in terms of people want to get in touch with me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I always say that's a great way to find me. It's easy. Um, you can message me. I'm happy to have a chat. And I also have my email, which is consult at thecomolshaw.com. Feel free to email me as well if you want to chat more of how I can support. Perfect. And we will have all of that in the show notes, um, wherever you're consuming this uh, episode, video or audio. Um, and be sure to reach out um, Como, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, for helping us to be conscious ourselves and dive in. I know I learned a lot, which is why I love doing this. I'm sure Lena would say the same. Um, and we're excited to, uh, to continue to track your progress in your consulting and uh, someday maybe book number two um, <laughs> uh, in the future. I can't wait to see what that will be. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you both so much. It was a great conversation. I'm excited to, um, not for book number two just yet, but you know, one day. <laughs> <laughs> and to our audience, as usual, thank you so much for joining us. We love you. Thank you for all of your interaction with us, your comments, your ideas for guests. Um, we love uh, to continue to, to meet you on social media and uh, interact. Be sure to check out past episodes on marketscale.com and uh, always, always keep learning. Keep learning.